this is the second day of this September 2023 uh, two-day session, and we'll re resume mindfulness in plain English, English, by Bhante Gunaratana. Chapter 10. Dealing with problems. You're going to run into problems in your meditation. Everybody does. It's one of the things I love about um, these writers uh, who've really walked the walk. Uh, they don't sugarcoat it. You know, every once in a while I'll come across an ad, um, maybe in a certain Buddhist magazine, uh, enlightenment in a weekend or <laughs> five easy steps. And it's just, yeah, try not to get too irritated by it. But just there, there's something about just laying it out as it is and just saying, it. you know, it's not easy doing this, but it's so vastly rewarding if you stick with it. Uh, Ajahn Chah reminds me of Ajahn Chah as well, the, the Thai force master from, from the sections that I've read from him before on my own. Uh, he just lays it out bare. It just, this is, we are going to die. This is how it is. So back to Bhante, Bhante Gunaratana. Uh, you're going to run into problems in your meditation. Everybody does. Problems come in all shapes and sizes. And the only thing you can be absolutely certain about, about it is that you will have some. The main trick in dealing with obstacles is to adopt the right attitude. Difficulties are an integral part of your practice. They aren't something to be avoided. They are to be used. They provide invaluable opportunities for learning. There's that word again, I think of that, those Chinese characters, Wei Ji, a Wei being crisis, and then Ji is opportunity. So don't look at your obstacles, take that as a perspective, an attitude. Don't see your obstacles in your meditation as being a problem. See it as an opportunity. Uh, of course, that's easier said than done. Um, but you know, it's not about a belief. Uh, he's not talking about a belief system here. We really are talking about just an attitude, um, just an approach to our practice. The reason we are all stuck in life's mud is that we ceaselessly run from our problems and after our desires. There it is again, uh, aversion and desires. Clinging on the one hand and avoiding on the other. Meditation provides us with a laboratory situation in which we can examine this syndrome and devise strategies for dealing with it. The various snags and hassles that arise during meditation are grist for the mill. Grist for the mill, you know, I think that was one of Roshi Kaplow's favorite sayings. He probably often mentioned that in Sashin especially if people did get snagged down or feeling like they were getting nowhere with, with their practice. And in fact, uh, to remind of the tombstone that we have of Roshi Kaplow's grave, which is just up above the uh, south end of the building, uh, past the creek, and a little towards the left there, I guess that would be the east, uh, you can see his tombstone. It's gravesite, and it's actually a gristmill. 
I think that's what you call it, one of those round circular stones uh, that pounds the, uh, the grain. <laughs> this is, I'm saying this coming from a person who has no idea how you grind uh, a wheat into flour. But that's what it used to be, a mill house, and, and we somehow have that stone from, from the mill house from long ago. Uh, all right, let's get back to it. The various snags and hassles that arise during meditation are grist for the mill. They are the material with which we work. There is no pleasure without some degree of pain. There is no pain without some amount of pleasure. Life is composed of joys and miseries. They go hand in hand. Meditation is no exception. You will experience good times and bad times, ecstasies and fear. Of course, the problem, the, the trick to this is to not get caught up in your ecstasy, ecstasies or your fears. It's the same approach. You know, you just notice it. Don't do anything with it. You've shown a light on it and just get back to the practice. So don't be surprised when you hit some experience that feels like a brick wall. Don't think you are special. All seasoned meditators have had their own brick walls. They come again and again. Just expect them and be ready to cope. Your ability to cope with trouble depends upon your attitude. If you can learn to regard these hassles as opportunities, as chances to de develop in your practice, Start again. If you can learn to regard these hassles as opportunities, as chances to develop in your practice, you'll make progress. Your ability to deal with some issue that arises in meditation will carry over into the rest of your life and allow you to smooth out big issues that really bother you. This is such an important point. Um, one of the really uh, profound uh, one of the profound surprises or realizations or insight that that one can have from from doing long arduous uh, meditation uh, sashin, is the working with the pain and we'll probably be talking about that a little later but the working with the pain getting beyond your pain um, there is a turning point where you can work with it and you can get beyond with it and it just doesn't become a problem anymore. And then lo and behold, that translates itself into our daily life. Uh, we're not so averse to conflict if conflict arises with someone. Uh, we're not so averse to uh, doing something, saying something uh, that might be painful to the other person, that they need to hear that, that, that feedback uh, because it's part of Zen training uh, or having a difficult conversation with your partner. Uh, we're not so averse to, a smaller example, but we're not so much averse to uh, doing something we don't want to do, but we need to do. Everything is grist for the mill.
If you try to avoid each piece of nastiness that arises in meditation, you are reinforcing the habit that has already made life seem so unbearable at times. It is essential to confront it is essential to learn to confront the less pleasant aspects of existence. Our job as meditators is to learn to be patient with ourselves, to see ourselves in an unbiased way, complete with all our sorrows and inadequacies. We have to learn to be kind to ourselves. In the long run, avoiding unpleasantness is a very unkind thing to do to yourself. I'm going to repeat that because it's really important. In the long run, avoiding unpleasantness is a very unkind thing to do to yourself. Paradoxically, kindness entails confronting unpleasantness when it arises. One popular human strategy for dealing with difficulty is auto-suggestion. When something nasty pops up, you convince yourself it is not there, or you convince yourself it is pleasant rather than unpleasant. The Buddha's tactic is quite the reverse. Rather than hide it or disguise it, the Buddha's teaching urges you to examine it to death. Buddhism advises you not to implant feelings that you don't really have or avoid feelings that you do have. Kind of reminds me when I first showed up at the center, and I was off of staff for a while, and I was a librarian um, at some of the local libraries, so I could pay off my student loans. And anyway, there there was uh, one of those, I don't know what you call them, like um, sessions, had nothing to do with the library. It was just kind of like a learning experience. And so we had a local woman come in. I can't remember the name. It was, she probably had a small not-for-profit organization. or Anyway, she was a consultant. And her whole talk uh, was all about positive thinking, you know, using positive thoughts and feelings. And even at that early stage of, of my Zen practice, um, I could sense that that's that's not the way that's not the way to reality that's not the way to uh being happy just by having positive thoughts or feelings and there's something there's something deeper there's there's getting beyond the thoughts getting beyond the feelings and not suppressing your feelings uh but experiencing your feelings and it's something um through long zen practice uh the feelings arise they're there for a while, and they subside. And we don't get so caught up in those, uh, that turbulent emotional, uh, yeah, turbulence, that, all that emotional turbulence that might arise uh, through our, our long, long days of practice, or long years of practice. I meant days of sashin. If you are miserable, you are miserable. That is the reality. That is what is happening. So confront that. Look it square in the eye without flinching. When you are having a bad time, examine the experience, observe it mindfully, study the phenomenon, and learn its mechanics. Well, this this is uh, mindfulness practice, uh, which we don't do. And which, by the way, I'm, I meant to say that a lot of times when I'm reading... From this book, uh, you know, he'll use the word mindfulness, and I just substitute the word mindfulness for zazen, 
when it works, when it applies to our practice. Uh, but this whole, you know, squ square in the eye without flinching, yes. Uh, when you are having a bad time, examine that experience, observe it mindfully, study the phenomenon and learn its mechanics. That we don't do. Um, a lot, you know, let's just use as an example anxiety. Anxi anxiety pops up. We don't know why. We're feeling agitated, anxious. It doesn't really matter why we feel anxious, although that also might pop up. We might have some, uh, I don't know, fear of the, something, some, a fear in the future. Am I going to make it through this round? Or um, So we might know why, or we might not, but the anxiety arises. We're not analyzing the anxiety. We're not trying to figure it out. All we're doing is we're following the breath, just returning our attention to the breath. And the anxiety will be there. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And it will pass. This point is essential, but it is one of the least understood aspects of Buddhist philosophy. Those who have studied Buddhism superficially are quick to conclude that it is pessimistic, always harping on unpleasant things like suffering, always urging us to confront the uncomfortable realities of pain, death, and illness. Buddhist thinkers do not regard themselves as pessimists. Quite the opposite, actually. Pain exists in the universe. Some measure of it is unavoidable. Excuse me. Some measure of it is unavoidable. Learning to deal with it is not pessimism, but a very pragmatic form of optimism. Yeah, always remember. You know, uh, I remember when I first started reading about Buddhism. You get that impression, the four noble truth. First one is life is suffering or life is dukkha, unsatisfactory. But always remember there's the third noble truth, which is there is a way out. Learning to deal with it, that is pain, is not pessimism, but a very pragmatic form of optimism. How would you deal with the death of your spouse? How would you feel if you lost your mother tomorrow, or your sister, or your closest friend? Suppose you lost your job, your savings, and the use of your legs, all on the same day. Could you face the prospect of spending the rest of your life in a wheelchair? How are you going to cope with the pain of terminal cancer if you contract it, and how will you deal with your own death when that approaches? You may escape most of these misfortunes, but you won't escape all of them. Most of us lose friends and relatives at some time during our lives. All of us get sick now and then, and all of us will die someday. You can suffer through things like that, or you can face them openly. The choice is yours. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is not. 
pain and suffering are two different animals. So just as an example of that, we're feeling pain in our lower back or in our knees. So yes, that's the pain. The suffering is the pain on top of the pain. Uh, we're thinking about the pain, or we're trying to get out of the pain, or we're trying to suppress the pain. That's the suffering side of it. And that's, that's, the, that's the learning, that's, that's such a great learning tool uh, when we bring it out into our daily lives, to not put the suffering, not put the pain on top of the pain. Pain is inevitable, suffering is not. Pain and suffering are two different animals. If any of these tragedies strike you in your present state of mind, you will suffer. I had to think about that one a little bit. If any of these tragedies strike you in your present state of mind, you will suffer. I think what he means there is by if you're thinking about the tragedy, if you're just mulling it over and over, course a tragedy happens you're affected by it uh again it goes back to how would you deal with the death of your spouse well you cry you grieve it's clean it's you experience the pain of that loss but it's then further down the road say where you're just constantly thinking about the pain or uh yeah thinking about the loss um just get back to the practice just Stay, hold on to the practice. And, uh, and then that way things open up. And things open up, if you start to cry, you start to cry. A bit of time spent in learning alternatives to those habit patterns is time well invested. Most human beings spend all their energies devising ways to increase their pleasure and decrease their pain. Buddhism does not advise that you cease this activity altogether. Money and security are fine. Pain should be avoided whenever possible. Nobody is telling you to give away every possession or seek out needless pain. But Buddhism does advise you to invest time and energy in learning to deal with unpleasantness because some pain is unavoidable. When you see a truck bearing down on you, by all means jump out of the way. But spend some time in meditation too. Learning to deal with discomfort is the only way you'll be ready to handle the truck you didn't see. Problems will arise in your practice. Some of them will be physical, some will be emotional, and some will be attitudinal. All of them can be confronted and each has its own specific response. All of them are opportunities to free yourself. Problem one, physical pain. All right, I think I'm going to skip physical pain. Um, yeah, because there are a lot of other problems that uh, I want to get through. And if I get through all the other problems, then we'll go back to physical pain. So let's go right to problem two, legs going to sleep. Well, I'm going to skip that one too. Uh, 
But just to mention, you know, just a couple of things about legs falling asleep. Chances are that if your legs are falling asleep, you're pinching your sciatic nerve. I can't say that for 100%, but that's my experience. I had numbness in the legs for a while, and it was from um, sitting and pinching my sciatic nerve. So a couple of solutions to that is you might be sitting too far back on your cushion. So you're cutting off that circulation. So it's always ideal to sit on the front third of your cushion. So not too far back. Another thing you can try is to get more, get some extra support underneath your cushion. Get some height there, you know, and that kind of, um, you can kind of, what I often do if I'm sitting cross-legged uh, is I'll lift myself, I'm sitting cross-legged on the cushion and I'll kind of lift my butt up into the air and then sit back down on it, the front third of the cushion, uh, and connect my sitting bones onto the cushion. So it's good to connect your sitting bones. You can actually feel them there in your butt to have those sitting bones connected onto the cushion. So, you know, that's just a couple of, of tricks. You know, if your legs continually falling asleep, then there's a problem there. You have to adjust. But, you know, every once in a while, my leg falls asleep. And, uh, yeah, it just, I adjust my posture a little bit. And Bob's your uncle. All right, legs going to sleep. Next. Problem three, odd sensations. Makyo. Uh, makyo, for those who don't know, is that uh, Japanese word, which means all sensory phenomenon that we might experience. You know, it could be hallucinations, it could be auditory, it could be texture on the body. Uh, some people are really prone to it, and some people are not, and everyone in between. Uh, everything in between, that is. All right. People experience all manner of varied phenomena in meditation. Some people get itches. Others feel tingling, deep relaxation, a feeling of lightness or a floating sensation. You may feel yourself growing or shrinking or rising up in the air. Beginners often get quite excited over such sensations. Don't worry, you are not likely to levitate anytime soon. <laughs> As relaxation sets in, the nervous systems <clears throat> start again. As relaxation sets in, the nervous system simply begins to pass sensory signals more efficiently. Large amount of large amounts of previously blocked sensory data can pour through, giving rise to all kinds of unique sensations. So fascinating. Um, yeah, I've never actually read it quite that way. Um, large amounts of previously blocked sensory data can pour through, giving rise to all kinds of unique sensations. It does not signify anything in particular. It is just sensation. So simply employ the normal technique. Watch it come up and watch it pass away. Don't get involved. Problem four, uh, drowsiness. Uh, we're going to skip that one too. Um, everyone, especially at the start of Sashin, whether it's a two-day or four-day, seven-day, everyone will struggle with drowsiness, even in the, just a normal daily round. Uh, so, you know, just a couple of tricks. Keep the eyes, get the eyes wide open, get light into the eyes. 
another just trick that came up to me just actually today is just remember to straighten that back. You know, you don't want to be straight like a Marine, but just feel the, you know, the chest. You can have the chest go up a little bit. You can feel the spine kind of expand. That generates energy. It does. Even that just small thing can help if you're, you're really struggling with drowsiness. So eyes open, uh, straighten that back. The other trick maybe might help is the chin. Always picture your chin as a drawer and you just, you're pushing a drawer in. Get the head nice and straight. You know, I really struggled with that uh, in my early years. My head was always sticking out. I was just so stuck in my head. And the monitors and Roshi compassionately just kept at it, kept adjusting my head. And I did notice a difference. You know, I was less stuck in thought now that my head was nice and aligned. And it probably helped with drowsiness. So those are just a couple of pointers. Problem five, inability to concentrate. I'm sure no one struggled with that one. <laughs> An overactive jumping attention is something that everybody experiences from time to time. It is generally handed by the tech, generally handled by the techniques presented in the chapter of on distractions. You should also be informed, however, that there are certain external factors that contribute to this phenomenon, and these are best handled by simple adjustments in your schedule. Mental images are powerful entities. They can remain in the mind for long periods. All of the storytelling arts are direct manipulation of such material, and if the writer has done her job well, the characters and images presented will have a powerful and lingering effect on the mind. If you have been to the best movie of the year, the meditation that follows is going to be full of these images. If you are halfway through the scariest horror novel you ever read, your meditation is going to be full of monsters. So switch the order of events. Do your meditation first, then read and go to the movies. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of... Uh, I have a feeling, this is more than once that I've come across him mentioning movies, so I have a, f a feeling that the Arbante here is, is quite the movie going, um, which is, it's nice to hear, you know, it kind of humanizes, sometimes we have a tendency to idolize and put these teachers on a pedestal, and, uh, well, it reminds me, you know, Roshi mentioned to me one time, uh, he's no... Um, hater of movies, let me tell you. Um, uh, once in a while, we'll talk about movies. And he happened to mention to me that the Dalai Lama really enjoyed watching movies, which brings back this other memory that I'll just mention quickly. Uh, one of the first people that from our center that went to Japan to train at Bukokuji. This is the uh, small temple in Obama, Japan, where Tongan Roshi taught for decades. Uh, on their spare time, they did one time, the two of them, Tangan Roshi, and I believe it was John Sheldon, went to go see a movie. <laughs> and John Sheldon was like, it was like the most saccharine, sentimental uh, story I'd ever seen. But lo and behold, he looks next to Tangan Roshi, and there he is with tears in his eyes. <laughs>
Another influential factor in your own emotional state. Oh, excuse me. Another influential factor is your own emotional state. If there is some real conflict in your life, that agitation will carry over into meditation. Try to resolve your immediate daily conflicts before meditation when you can. Your life will run more smoothly and you won't be pondering uselessly in your practice. But don't use this advice as a way to avoid meditation. Sometimes you can't resolve every issue before you sit. Just go ahead and sit anyway. Use your meditation to let go of all the egocentric attitudes that keep you trapped within your own limited viewpoint. Your problems will resolve much more easily thereafter. And then there are those days when it seems that the mind will never rest, but you can't locate any apparent cause. That's okay. We're not looking for causes. If your mind is active, your mind is active. If the, the, the wheels are just spinning. The wheels are just spinning. But don't believe in them. Don't get caught up in them. Just it, Again, it's just always returning to the practice, returning to the the inhalation and exhalation, returning to the koan, not, it's just, it's kind of like cutting the circuits off. Just get right back to it. And then there are those days when it seems that the mind will never rest, but you can't locate any apparent cause. Remember the cyclic alternation we spoke of earlier. Meditation goes in cycles. You have good days and you have bad days. Problem six, boredom. It is difficult to imagine anything more inherently boring than sitting still for an hour with nothing to do but feel the air going in and out of your nose. <laughs> You're going to run into boredom repeatedly in your meditation. Everybody does. Boredom is a mental state and should be treated as such. All right, then he mentions a couple of mindfulness techniques uh, that I'm going to skip over. You are... You are not observing its living reality. He's talking about uh, the method, the practice. When you are clearly mindful of the breath or of anything else, it is never boring. Zen looks at everything with the eyes of a child, with a sense of wonder. Mindfulness sees every moment as if it were the first and the only moment in the universe. Just this. So look again. Problem seven, fear. States of fear sometimes arise during meditation for no discernible reason. It is a common phenomenon and there can be a number of causes. You may be experiencing the effect of something repressed long ago. Remember, thoughts arise first in the unconscious. The emotional contents of a thought complex often leak through into your conscious awareness long before the thought itself surfaces. Again, the emotional contents of a thought complex 
often leak through into your conscious awareness long before the thought itself surfaces. So there's an example of, you know, say anxiety popping up and you don't know why, but then eventually the cause does pop up and you do understand why you're feeling so anxious. If you sit through the fear, the memory itself may bubble up to a point where you can endure it. Or you may be dealing directly with the fear that we all fear, fear of the unknown. Yeah, fear of the unknown. That's the sheen right there. Not fear of the unknown, entering into the unknown. We don't know what's going to pop up. At some point in your meditation, at some point in your meditation career, you will be struck with the seriousness of what you are actually doing. You are tearing down the wall of illusion you have always used to explain life to yourself and to shield yourself from the intense lame reality. You are about to meet ultimate truth face to face. That is scary, but it has to be dealt with eventually. Go ahead and dive right in. A third possibility, the fear that you are feeling may be self-generated. It may be arising out of unskillful concentration. You may have set an unconscious program to, quote, examine what comes up. Thus, when a frightening fantasy arises, concentration locks onto it, and the fantasy feeds on the energy of your attention and grows. The real problem here is that mindfulness is weak. All right, let's just go back to that. Thus, when a frightening fantasy arises, concentration locks onto it, and the fantasy feeds on the energy of your attention and grows. All right, so something comes up. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, with everything that arises, there is a beginning and a middle and an end. But it does end. Of course it ends. Everything is impermanent. Everything changes constantly, moment to moment. So the middle part of whatever is popping up, that's really where we have agency. That's where we really have a choice on how long that middle part will be. So just get back to move. Just get back to what? Just return over and over again. And that middle just gets shorter and shorter. And, you know, the thoughts may be there. The image might still be there. But uh, I remember my early days of Sashin, you know, uh, doing Yaza, and these images would appear. So I was susceptible a little bit to Makyo, especially if I was sitting late into the night. And when those images appeared, I'm like, all right, just go to bed. You know, that's another solution. (laughs) Just going to bed. You know, if you're really struggling, it's, yeah, Yaza, it's an interesting thing about Yaza. You know, it really is an experiment. For some people, Sitting right after the evening sitting uh, can be really effective. Uh, sometimes going to bed right away and then getting up early, but get up early and do yaza then. That for others, that really works. It really depends on, I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. 
One of the few times I really got angry at Roshi was I was in Doksan and I was really like pushing the envelope with Yaza. I was like really staying up late and I was still trying to, I guess I was just working with it, still trying to figure out what works best for me. And I was just demanding to him, to him, maybe he could hear it in the tone of my voice, but I just want to know how much sleep I should get. <laughs> you know, he was just there, shrugged his shoulders. Um, you just got to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> went out there fuming. <laughs> but you do. You really do have to figure it out for yourself. You know, some people don't do any yaza. They do this yaza during the day. You know, during all the breaks, they're continually sitting. That works too. But uh, it is always a good idea to at least try. And, this, and uh, yeah, to at least try, experiment, see what works. Because we all have our own body rhythms, you know. There's that, that absolute and relative there. Yes, there is this absolute. There is this, we all share this Buddha mind, this original, unborn Buddha mind. But, you know, we have differences. And it's the same thing with our body rhythms, you know. For some people, like I said earlier, uh, do yaza at, right after the formal sittings at night. Uh, I that really works for me. And then by midnight, uh, 11 o'clock, it gets harder, you know, so then I go to sleep. But it's this, this, uh, this trying it out. Where were we? Okay, yeah, I do want to find my place because this is some good stuff here. Watch the pictures as... Okay, so we're going back to, um, say, Makyo. Watch the pictures as pictures. See memories as memories. Observe the emotional reactions that come along and know them for what they are. Stand aside from the process... Excuse me. Stand aside from the process and don't get involved. Treat the whole dynamic as if you were a curious bystander. Most important, don't fight the situation. Don't try to repress the memories or the feelings or the fantasies. Just step out of the way and let the whole mess bubble up and flow past. It can't hurt you. It is just memory. It is only fantasy. It is nothing but fear. When you let fear run its course in the arena of conscious attention, it won't sink back into the unconscious. It won't come back to haunt you later. It will be gone for good. Okay, I think we have time for one more. So I think we'll do problem nine, which is trying too hard. Advanced meditators are generally found to be pretty jovial people. They possess one of the most valuable of all human treasures, a sense of humor. 
It is not the superficial, witty repartee of the talk show host. It is a real sense of humor. They can laugh at their own human failures. They can chuckle at personal disasters. Beginners in meditation are often much too serious for their own good. It is important to learn to loosen up in your session, to relax in your meditation. You need to learn to watch objectively whatever happens. You can't do that if you are tensed and striving, taking it all so very, very seriously. Well, I mean, that's easier said than done. You know, you come to practice, if you're serious, you're serious. You buckle down. I just think of, you know, yeah, it's important to relax the body, relax the mind, you know. I think so many of us come to this practice, for whatever reason, we're just we're trying to white-knuckle the pain, and that's that's not the approach you need to take to practice. Um, yeah, there's just this sense of cutting off or repression or suppressing just this kind of harshness. Um, but of course, I mean, that's, that's what we, it's, is that how we come to a practice? Um, that's how we come to it. But if you're effectively doing sitting and sashin after sashin, that things will change. Things will organically, naturally change. And we don't get so kind of, we, we reach, I think what happens is through the practice, through doksans, through Teshos, um, you can't not help but change with the practice. And then at a certain point, I think we realize the white knuckling it just is not going to work. It might work for a short period of time, but in the long term, uh, that thing is just, I think we just naturally soften and the mind and the body just becomes more relaxed. And we don't approach it that way as much anymore. We're not just trying to bear down, uh, white knuckle the pain or the koan or the falling of the breath. Uh, but it's something we all need to get through. Um, it's something we all need to do uh, to get into a different place with our practice. Ah, here we go. New meditators are often overly eager for results. They are full of enormous and inflated expectations. They jump right in. Good, good. Jump right into the practice. They jump right in and expect incredible results in no time flat. Okay, not so good. They push. They tense. They sweat and strain, and it is all so terribly, terribly grim and solemn. This state of tension is the antithesis of mindfulness. Naturally, they achieve little. Then they decide that this meditation is not so exciting after all. It did not give them what they wanted. They chuck it aside. It should be pointed out that you learn about meditation only by meditating. You learn what meditation is all about and where it leads only through direct experience of the thing itself. Therefore, 
The beginner does not know where he is headed because he has developed little sense of where his practice is leading. The novice's expectation is naturally unrealistic and uninformed. Newcomers to meditation expect all the wrong things, and those expectations do not go at all. Do, do, oh, excuse me. Say that again. Newcomers to meditation expect all the wrong things, and those expectations do no good at all. They get in the way. That's what's so great about Doksan, you know, is uh, just tearing down those expectations. Nope. Ring. <laughs> Roshan just happened to mention to me this recently. You know that ringing of the handbell? That is his way of expressing faith in the student. So that's, yeah. But again, the teacher is there to pull a carpet from underneath your feet. Not this, not that. Nope. Keep going, keep going. Don't give up. Trying too hard leads to rigidity and unhappiness, to guilt and self-condemnation. When you are trying too hard, your effort becomes mechanical and that defeats mindfulness before it even gets started. You are well advised to drop all that. Drop your expectations and straining. Drop your expectations and straining. Simply meditate with a steady and balanced effort. Enjoy your meditation and don't load yourself down with sweat and struggles. Just be mindful. The meditation itself will take care of the future. Okay, this is a good place to stop. I will we'll now recite the four vows. <laughs> 